been two, four days and nights since the retreat started. It's about halfway. Maybe that perception brings up the reaction. Oh my goodness. Or maybe, oh gosh, I've got to get enlightened in the next. But just noticing how the perceptions affect us. A lot can happen in two days when one is noticing the nature of the heart. On the way into the talk this evening, I, I met a dear, dear friend. who was together with me in Thailand 33 years ago. He was a helicopter pilot in uh, Vietnam and then uh, got an honorable discharge and found the Dharma. Ended up at uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery. as did I, and another small band of collection of characters who washed up on those uh, shores, but who we shared this uh, commitment to want to understand how we create so much suffering in this life, to want to meet it skillfully. So I, I, how did I, I, that was 33 years ago. I'm so grateful I encountered the Dharma. It's been the center of my life for 33 years. But it's been in many ways harder than I thought it would be. It's challenging, and yet rich with blessings. Back in 19... 76, I was at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, and uh, in a way the pinnacle of anything I could have dreamed of as far as accomplishing things been a wrestling champion in high school, five-time Mid-South champion, had won a national prep invitational tournament when I was uh, 17. Called to Princeton University. Worked hard at academics, was a Phi Beta Kappa there, really working hard. And I don't feel bad about that, I was striving. I had such a deep-rooted sense that that's how you get to happiness, it's just winning. And, and, and it wasn't all bad, just negative ambition. I worked hard. I feel good about those qualities. But a mind that's continually comparing, continually assessing, 
is never really satisfied for long. I remember when I won uh, the national championship, I'd been working for years in wrestling, doing at one point 500 push-ups a day, climbing ropes, running. We had a wrestling mat at home so we could practice at home. got to the finals that year and, uh, and I, I, I had a really good match and, and won 13 to 2. I won a really good match and my hand was held up by the referee and I had been I had to become a champion and when I was a little kid I'd seen these champions on the walls of our high school. I thought, oh, one day maybe. And that was good striving. There was good stuff in there. The champion. And yet, minutes later, minutes later even, I was already looking at the champions, other champions, who's coming back next year, who might I have to wrestle next year. The elusiveness. So when I got to Oxford, 1976, and mom having a mom like I had, mom and dad came to everything we all did, all our, the three boys did in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And all our trophies were everywhere and everything's on the wall and mom religiously kept scrapbooks of everything and I'd open the books and oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but how long can you keep the thought going, I'm a champion? So by the time I was 24 at Oxford, I started feeling weary, like 104. I was getting so tired, so tired of having to win something. And noticing, even though on paper I had all this accomplishment, I still was emotionally all over the place and filled with self-aversion. I never, I, I considered myself stupid, stupid. Never good enough. Okay, I won a wrestling championship, but I knew my weaknesses. I knew where I wasn't that good. And so I started just wanting to sit in quiet places. I like sitting in churches, not when any sermons were happening. Here I am giving a sermon. I, somehow the, somehow the, the doctrinal stuff Look, mom was a Southern Baptist, dad was a New York Jew. Growing up, <laughs> growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I was regularly informed we were going to hell <laughs> because they took us to the Unitarian Church. <laughs> but inside the church, they said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And we learned about Jesus and Moses and Krishna and Buddha. And so then how come we're going to hell? And so I just thought, well, this religion's for nutcases. Well, here I am now. <laughs> but striving, striving, feeling so weary. I enjoyed just sitting in quiet places. Not when anything was happening, sensing there's something. I was so outward, just sensing there was a hunger to want to listen. I just naturally started meditating. I didn't know what I was doing. 
but I naturally start, and I enjoy the consecrated space of the churches. Listen. And I encountered a word in a book. Just even the word enlightenment inspired me so much. I sensed that just from the word, yes, there is a possibility we have of, of, of a transformation in here. But I didn't know what I was doing. I, I've always appreciated teachers. I didn't know what I was doing. Still getting tangled up. So when I then heard back in 1976, I heard someone. I had gone on my first meditation retreat. And there was no walking meditation. <laughs> Just sitting. My mind was crazy. But on the retreat, there was someone visiting through, through the, the center that uh, lived in Thailand and was looking for a place to stay in Oxford. And the managers introduced me to him after the retreat and, and said, do you think you can put this guy up? This is a very confident psychiatrist, walked across the North Pole, dined with the king and queen of Thailand, really confident. But one of his hobbies was checking out meditation monasteries all around the country and studying the effect of meditation on personality structure. And just while he was telling all these stories, really confident guy, at one point his voice got soft. And he said, there is a special monastery. And there's a very special teacher. His name is Ajahn Chah, and he's enlightened. And, uh, and he has some Westerners with him. And the head Westerner, if he's not enlightened, he's pretty close. <laughs> but somehow that, this big, brash, confident guy, I'd never seen that before, reverence. It was so beautiful. It touched me. And you know, in these movies, sometimes you see some Oriental uh, Asian movie of, of someone with no shirt on hitting a big gong. It was like a big gong went off when I just, this Oxford student who was weary, hearing, seeing this reverence, and hearing about a teacher that was wise and that, the, that you could go and live with him. Within weeks, I had a leave of absence from the university. I was, I was writing a, a thesis and I was supposed to go back to medical school, but I, I, I got a leave of absence to try to argue it was part of my thesis. <laughs> And I went out there, and I had, because uh, I didn't know, I heard this word, but I had no idea what the process was, so I, uh, I was hoping that this uh, master, Ajahn Chah, would recognize my potential <laughs> and tap me on the head, and that would be 
Might be a bit shocking for a while, but it would clear, clear out all the cobwebs. I'd see clearly. Crack this enlightenment thing in a year, maybe two max. <laughs> uh, but I, I got out there, and uh, this person who I had met before met me, took me up to the monastery, and there was uh, Joseph, there was Pabakaro, he was in the monastery, Anando, Ajahn Sumedho, others. And, uh, and uh, this man who took me, Douglas Burns, Dr. Douglas Burns, he took me to Ajahn Chah. He was sitting in his wicker chair receiving guests. Underneath his kuti, the houses are built on stilts, his little meditation hut. Oily rags were wrapped around the bottom so that the ants and termites wouldn't crawl up, eat everything. Najan Chah would receive guests in this little patio beneath his hut. And uh, Douglas helped translate for me. Ajahn Chah noticed this, and then uh, Douglas introduced, introduced me. And Ajahn Chah says, hmm, why have you come here? And uh, so I mumbled something or other. I don't know if I mentioned the E word. I don't know if I said enlightenment. I might have. <laughs> but uh, it's something about imbalance or something or other. But I felt myself sort of petering out. Didn't quite. And then he said, have you meditated? Well, I was on firmer ground there. I'd done a 10-day retreat. <laughs> Mind you, this is only a five-day retreat. I'd done a 10-day retreat. <laughs> and so I was feeling pretty good about that and uh, felt somewhat accomplished. And... Um, and so he asked me about my meditation. And I was, uh, I, I'd been doing some sweeping, but I was quite sweeping the attention through the body. But I was I noticed I could do it two sides simultaneously. <laughs> and I thought, surely he would notice that. <laughs> and so I did my little spiel. And then he started talking. And he was sitting in a wicker chair. Then he got off his chair on all fours on the floor, sniffing around like a dog. <laughs> And then saying a few things, and everyone's laughing under there. Laughing, laughing, and then I'm saying, Doug, I'm not getting a translation here. <laughs> you know, but my famous powers of intuition, I am a Piscean after all, my famous powers of intuition sensed that he wasn't that impressed with my meditation. <laughs> How did I know that? It's just intuition. But anyway, he was going on, and finally I said, Doug, and, um, you know, Doug says, you know, he says, you don't need to sniff all over the place. You see, I had been writing a thesis at Oxford on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. I'd been trying to, and I was so sincere, wanting to understand how it all fit together, and the <laughs> science and mysticism and, and the creative process, and I just knew I needed to kind of work it out. And Ajahn said, you don't need to sniff all over the place. And he said, and he pointed to his nose. He said, just be with your breathing. He said, if you can understand one thing, you'll understand everything. 
This is the last place I thought I would find some insight. I got made fun of so much for my nose as I was growing up. I hated looking in the mirror. My English teacher never let me forget it. He said, son, your nose is like the keel of a ship. <laughs> and Ajahn Chah is pointing this. But I'm so grateful, 33 years later, the simplicity. And yes, there's a place for complexity. But the permission, permission to be with simple things. He said, let Sumedho, that was the abbot of the Western Monastery, he said, let Sumedho teach you how to be a monk. And there we were encouraged to be with simple things. My meditation was to notice the breath coming in and the breath going out. Coming in and going out. Sometimes the more we try to figure it all out, we just get overwhelmed thinking in circles. We've been trying these first two days, giving ourselves permission that it's okay to be with the simplicity, even of the sensation of one step at a time. With the simplicity of knowing that you're breathing in, knowing that you're breathing out. If you can understand one thing, you can understand everything. What, what's that about? Tanishra last night was talking about entering the stream. This first real taste of Nibbana when we become more unshakable in our trusting capacity. After the Buddha was enlightened, when he gave his first sermon, first discourse, to the, his five former attendants, colleagues, at the Deer Park outside of Benares. When he talked about the noble truths of suffering that comes from clinging and the ending of suffering comes from relinquishment. At the end of the talk, he said one of his disciples had a breakthrough, entered the stream. It said, the Dharma I opened. His name was Kundanya. The Buddha said, oh, Kundanya understands. And what did he understand? All that arises ceases. You might think, is that all? What arises ceases. And that's what we can learn in being with simplicity. Looking deep enough at something simple that our conceptual framework says, I, I, I know breath, breath, in, out, okay. Tree, oak tree, pine tree, this person, fifty, you know. And then concepts make us think, oh, I know that. Yes, breath, I've seen, seen it. I'd be interested in your breath, not my breath. But when we stay with it, and actually that it's not a thing. Concepts make it seem like a thing. Actually, when we attend to that simple experience that what we might call a thing is becoming otherwise instant after instant. We might worry, 
we hear about samadhi and think, oh gosh, first John and second John and third, how deep am I getting? Ajahn Chah didn't put that much importance on how deep you're getting. We can just get attached to it or hung up about it. I mean, he praised learning to get as calm as one can, but he encouraged us to use the presence that we have to see into the nature of things. And one of the most important things he encouraged us to see was Anichang, this principle of change, impermanence. And when something's impermanent, it's not certain because it's shifting. So his Thai expression would be my na. It's my is not na. It's not certain. You think it's this way and then it shifts. Sometimes in Thailand, people, you know, think, oh, monks have visions and they maybe can tell you lottery numbers and past lives or future things. And so a lot of times Thai people are coming, would come and say, are you seeing visions? And Ajahn Chah said, if people ask you if you're seeing visions, say, yeah. (laughs) But he says, I'm seeing anichang, change. He said, can you see change? Dukkang, can you see that unsatisfactoriness, that suffering that comes when you, when you try to hold on to something and don't want it to change? I like the in-breath. It's so expansive. It's so fresh. It's so... But you can't just breathe in. Explode. The mind the in-breath, becomes the out-breath, becomes the in-breath. Can we really understand that in something simple? Breathing in. See it changing every moment. Every moment. The insight into change. This is, this is the wisdom faculty. We're talking about the faculties. This is the wisdom faculties operating. We can meditate, get calm, love the calm, hold on to the calm, and there's skill there. But if our wisdom's not operating, we just want to be calm all the time. Like Lake Chickamauga, where I grew up, on a still summer evening, the lake is calm and it's delicious. You can whisper and someone can hear you across the lake. Ah, and just as you're enjoying, that water's like glass. Just as you're enjoying it. (laughs) Somebody's got a motorboat. But our states of calm are also like that. That's how it is. So at some point, yes, we use what calm we have to enjoy that, but at some point it's very important to ask the question, how is it now, and to learn about the nature of things. This is that balance between samadhi, calm, and wisdom, panya, vipassana, looking into. So we can use the breath for stabilizing, simplifying, but then we can also, as we're being with breathing, or the simplicity of walking, begin to start to notice this characteristic of change.
not just know it intellectually, to, to be with it. If you understand one thing, you'll understand everything. Because our body is continually changing. Forms are continually changing. All that we take to be me, what the Buddha called, and we'll be looking at this as the, the last few days of the retreat, what we take to be me, our forms, and then the forms around us, body, possessions, loved ones, planet, galaxies, all forms are continually, just like the weather, just like this in-breath and out-breath changing, my nair, always becoming otherwise. And feeling. So there's the form and then there's the, the mind, our experiences of liking and not liking, and even more subtle, perceptions. Being a winner, being a loser, Impulses, volition, moments of consciousness itself, moments of seeing, like right now, seeing this room, hearing the sound of my voice, noticing it's evening Dhamma talk with Kitty Sorrow. Oh God, how long is it going to go on? It's been a long day. Or, oh, Kitty Sorrow is wonderful. Or, oh, whatever. But notice, good talk, bad talk, when we actually get closer to it, what we're calling a talk, notice sounds keep touching the ear consciousness, touching consciousness and dissolving, filled with holes, coming otherwise every instant. And that's mixing in with moments of seeing, mixed in with feeling our body, thoughts we might be having, cascading, cascading, shifting and changing, coming otherwise every instant, and yet we can say, good day, oh, terrible day. Our concepts can make it seem so clunky, so thing-like, when actually stuff is shifting. But if we don't know that, we take something and imagine we can find certainty in holding on. As Ajahn Chah said again and again, if you look for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, you're bound to suffer. Winning, success. But the nature of that, just like the breath, is, is there and then it's gone. what the Buddha called the worldly winds are blowing for everyone, whether you're a champion, a, a king, a president, a pauper. A... Everyone experiences praise and blame. Honor, being honored, and dishonor. Success, things kind of going well, from achieving something to a successful meditation, to failure to happiness and suffering, being pleased by seeing the snow, the pain of being cold. When we don't understand these worldly winds, we get excited and elated by the praise, and we, and we then lean into it. 
We identify with it. We take our stand on it. That's called birth, success, pleasure. And, and we're sensing, yes, this, this is where stability is. But we've put our stand on something. We're leaning on something that by nature is minor. It's uncertain. So it collapses. And the praise, oh, that was wonderful, Katie. So a wonderful talk. I just, words can't get there. Oh, well, maybe that 33 years wasn't going to give another talk and, and the person looks away when I walk by. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, uh, Tanisra, was it okay? Uh, I've got something to do. Oh, my God. Oh, dear. And then we're leaning, trying to milk something somewhere. Somebody praise me. And... These worldly winds, we can circle around them if we don't understand. But if can we understand in and out, in breath, out breath, start to get a sense for it is the nature, it is the nature of dawn and dusk, of praise and blame, of pain and pleasure. So we first just even start to notice how we've been looking in the wrong place, asking conditions to give us what they can't give us. And in his earthy way, Ajahn Chah says, it's like going up to a duck and saying, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> going around quacking, you could be waking us up in the morning. Cock-a-doodle-doo. He says, it's, it's, it's as dumb as that. Asking conditions to be what they can't be. And if we honor and begin to relinquish our biases, our demanding, start to let be, let go. Ploy Wang was one of Ajahn Chah's expressions. He said a lot. We can learn to let go, let things be. Then that second arrow we were talking about, that extra suffering we're inflicting on ourselves by demanding things be other than they are starts to subside and in our relinquishing conditions continue to be conditions but then we have the opportunity to begin to touch into our home ground our refuge the listening itself the one who knows A sound arises of my voice. And when it subsides, what remains? You can say sound is gone, but isn't the essence of the listening still there, the knowingness, the, what the Thais call Pulu, the one that knows, or the Buddha called the refuge? One of the Buddha's disciples always was, the Buddha was beautiful. Lifetime after lifetime cultivating virtue, so he had incredible features, lovely. So one of the disciples just gazed. He had plenty of faith, a lot of adoration. Just loved looking at the Buddha's golden skin. 
He said he had curly hair. I don't know. Beautiful voice. But the Buddha was thinking, he's not really getting my message. <laughs> so he sent him to a branch monastery out there. And the guy's shaking his head, I've been sent away by the Buddha. Oh, woe is me. The Buddha heard his thought and appeared before it and said, why are you upset? Well, you sent me away, Lord, separated from the Buddha. And the Buddha pointed to his body and said, you think this is the Buddha? Okay, this is the teacher. But the Buddha, the Buddha's body arises like that in-breath and ceases, goes back to the ground. And then he said, the one who sees the Dharma The Dharma means the nature of things. The one who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. When we, in our own way, if we can give ourselves permission to be simple enough to see the in and the out and begin to sense that actually everything, all so-called things are not really things. They're processes shifting and changing. The forms, the weather, the sights, the sounds, the feelings, the perception. We can begin to see the Dharma of just one thing this moment. One thing, one thing, one thing. In that letting be, letting go can happen and we can awaken to what's already here. Our own, what the Buddha called original brightness to what's called the Amata Dhamma, that which doesn't die, that which is such, it is as it is. Encourage us to be patient, very patient. Doing what Arjun Chah said, I had some breakthroughs early on and had some peace. Oh, delicious. Arjun Chah said, because I kept at Oxford trying to think better thoughts and more interesting thoughts and to please the professors and, and I was getting so tired. And Arjun Chah said, you can learn as much from your stupid thoughts as you can from your intelligent ones because they all arise and cease. Everyone does what it's supposed to do. It's born and dies and takes you back to suchness. So I had some letting go experiences. Then I started, I had diarrhea for six months. Then I got bit by centipede. Then I started urinating blood. And then I think I was anorexic because my belly was blowing. I think, I am fat, feeling so guilty about eating. I was determined to be mindful. We ate one meal a day out there. And the food would get there in front of me. And I mean, this next thing I know, my bowl was empty. And I think, who ate? My... <laughs> then I feel like a beach well. And I just never again, never again hate myself, crawl back to my hut, never again. And I just, you know, hated myself. And then I I got to where I started getting more and more depressed. And we'd sit on these 
platforms and up the line there would just be one bald head after another. <laughs> and then down the line there's just more bald heads. <laughs> and we'd do the all night sitting once a week and you'd start the, you know, I'm breaking through, buddy. <laughs> and we'd cross our legs and really go for it. And then, you know, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, still got some gum lungs, some energy, but by nine, you're kind of flagging. And then by 10, you're not even midnight yet. And you look up the line and then the bald heads are rocking. <laughs> and this is serious because when you got a nose like mine, you're sitting up on a, on a concrete platform, you fall off that thing. I mean, I just had imaginings of this, this nose getting pushed back into my brain. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, but even that didn't keep me awake sometimes. And I'm going like that. And so I started getting really discouraged. And uh, Babakra was the abbot then. And I just said, to, I said, oh, John, I said, teacher, I said, I'm getting really, you know, I feel like I'll never laugh again. You know, it just seems so dark, so impossible. Just, you know, all I can think about is, you know, lust and greed and I hate myself. And, and he said, I said, do you think you, you could help me go talk to Ajahn Chah? And so Babakro said, yeah, I'll take you over. So he very uh, kindly took me over to the main monastery. And uh, we had, got to talk to Ajahn Chah while everyone else went to chanting. Ajahn Chah was sitting in his wicker chair, and then he and we were sitting on the floor, and then he said something like "Binyang," like "What is it?" All right. Now, Babakro was famous for he he could speak fluent. If someone didn't see that he was a Westerner and just heard his voice, he had such perfect Thai and Laotian, they would think he was because he has an incredible ear. So um, uh, he was very good at translating. I even knew, though, what Bin Young means, you know, like, all right, tell me what's happening. And I said, well, look, Ajahn Chah, I feel like I'm never going to laugh again. It just seems so heavy. And then he asked him about my past, and I told him about wrestling and stuff like that. And then he says, uh, Pabakro translated, and then he says, well, you know, uh, Kitty Salo, he, he pronounced it like that, Kitty Salo, they don't pronounce R's or kind of L's. You know, Kitty Sala. He says, you remind me of a chipmunk. <laughs> I think Pabakro had to kind of figure out whether it was a squirrel or a chipmunk, but it was something, it was something that, it was this little creature that climbs trees. He said, there's this baby, baby chipmunk. <laughs> and uh, and Pabakro says, you know, he says, you remind him of a baby chipmunk. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, all right, let's go with this. And he says, well, and this baby chipmunk had a mother who could climb the trees and jump from branch to branch and do incredible acrobatics. And this uh, baby said, wow, I'll do that. Ran up the tree, leaped for a branch, and then Ajahn Chah went, dog. <laughs> and in Thai, that means it fell down and dog and started crying. And, um, and the mother said, what are you crying? And the mother says, you need to go to school, son. And uh, so this, uh, so meanwhile, Pabakro's translating to me. 
go to school. And so this chipmunk goes to kindergarten, learns a few tricks, can climb up, can jump on a branch, and dog. <laughs> anyway, he's doing this doking thing. And then I'm sitting under Ajahn Chah. He's in his wicker chair. Bakro's whispering in my ear. And it's almost like his eyes, Ajahn Chah's eyes were going in circles because his chipmunk would fall and then cry and, and uh, you need to go to school. This chunk was going first grade, second grade, third grade, high school, I don't know, somewhere in high school maybe, I started hysterically laughing. You know, I'm rolling, rolling on his floor, killing myself. Meanwhile, he carries on, you know, uh, college, and, and Pabacro's still whispering to me, you know, and he does things and dog, dog. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm, I'm killing myself on the floor, and then, you know, finally I, I, I kind of rally and get up a bit. And, and he's got this chipmunk going for a Ph.D. <laughs> <clears throat> and then at some point, Ajahn Chah just kind of looked at me and said, and you know one day that chipmunk could go up and do everything its mother could do. Jump and this. this kind of, you know, relief. It's our nature, our true nature. We can laugh at our failures. Keep beginning again. Because our nature is luminous, it is spacious. And from the suffering, we learn where we're clinging. But the value of a good friend, the value of a good friend. Buddha said, you can't find an external thing as important as a person of integrity, a good friend who can encourage us. Encourage us, and then from them we hear true teaching. And then that gives rise to us then taking that inside and, and reflecting, reflecting on change, reflecting on uncertainty, reflecting on suffering. I'll tell you what she said in a minute. <laughs> reflecting. And then we can practice. A good friend then helps us practice. So I really feel, feel good about good friends. So it's so lovely to see Joseph Pabakaro, remember Ajahn Chah, Tanisra, all of you. She whispered to me the part of the story that I haven't told you, that for years I blotted out of my mind. Because I thought, I was in such euphoria when he said, you know, one day I could do everything the mother could do. You know, I thought, gee, I'm there. And then it wasn't long after that, he said, you know, you also remind me of a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, all right, just with Tanisha's encouragement, I've just been recently revisiting the donkey the last few years. He says, you remind me of this donkey, and it wasn't an ordinary donkey, it was uh, quite clever. It, it was a, a music appreciator. This donkey listened to the cadences of the, of the crickets, or what, whatever you call them, cicadas, in the forest, and the music that they made was incredible, and this being an intelligent donkey thought, I would like to make music first study. And so this donkey was going to observe 
how they did it. Ah, and it saw that the crickets or whatever they were called ate dewdrops. So this donkey diligently licked dewdrops by the tens, by the hundreds, by the thousands, until it knew it was ready. <laughs> and then it opened up its mouth to make music. And you know what happened. And I'm thinking, why did he tell me that story? <laughs> so thank you, Tanisha. But <laughs> but I'm beginning. You know, we do learn from teachers, and that is important. But also, there is something, and this is important. She's right. All that winning and all that self-loathing that I haven't ever really come to terms with. You know, there's also something in this about learning to honor our nature, what we are. And through being with what we are, allowing our sound. Okay, it gets adjusted, it gets purified by our efforts, but there's not just about making ourselves into who the teacher is. There's also something about feeling into our nature. So in this midway point of this retreat, I encourage us to be patient, to stay with it, that we are very, very fortunate, and that we are actually surrounded by blessings. And uh, may we keep a sense of humor about it all and trust that our nature, if we give it attention, can flower and will flower. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.